Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, as uh, Mike said, my name is Rich. I'm going to be taking us through this next part of our time together. Um, and what we're going to be looking at this morning doesn't kind of fit neatly into a, a series or anything like that, um, but I hope instead might help us to tie together um, a few of those threads that we've seen already this morning um, that we've been living with as a community. Uh, and the first of those is the Easter story um, that we've been celebrating over the last few weeks. Um, Easter may have come and gone, um, but kind of the remnants of it still remain. Um, in my house, for example, we still have, hard as it may be for some of you to believe, some uneaten Easter's chocolate still hiding away, ready to be eaten. Although I also have in my house an uneaten advent calendar as well, which possibly shows you something about how organized and um, tidy we are at my house. Anyway, so we're going to be following on the Easter story a little bit um, by looking at uh, an event that happened just a week after uh, the events of Resurrection Sunday. Uh, and the second thread that we're going to be kind of tying together this morning um, is, as we've already heard, we're in a season as a community where we've had to respond um, to a lot of suffering amongst us. We've had to process a lot of grief. And in recent weeks, we've taken some different points out of our, our kind of regular series working through the book of Colossians um, to look at what it is and how we live with suffering and how we live with death. And it's natural that at different points during the journey of both of those things, as well as kind of with all the normal pressures of life that many of us face, work and family and identity and purpose and all of that stuff, we'll find ourselves with doubts and questions that we're struggling to answer. So this morning we're gonna take some time to look at what it is to live with doubt. You know, a couple of years ago, um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, caused a bit of a, a stir when he said that he sometimes doubts whether God is really there. At the International Business Times called it the doubt of the century. Um, and all, all kinds of different commentators and news outlets were kind of quick to, to jump on it and proclaim a, a victory for atheism, um, to wonder whether or not this was the end of the church as we know it today. And I think that reflects the fact that we live in a very doubtful age. We live in a very skeptical age. And that cultural climate has a tremendous impact on how we think, on how we see ourselves, on how we see others, on how we see God. But as I hope we're going to see this morning, doubt is not the enemy of faith, but an essential part of it. It's something that acknowledges our limitations and helps us get to grips with the fundamentals of what we believe and why we believe it. When we respond to doubt properly, it helps us turn cold doctrine into living faith. It helps us understand that in the midst of that place of questions and doubt, Jesus really does change everything. And Jesus really is enough. And yet, as, as significant as uh, these questions are for us today, they're not kind of new ones. And so it's helpful when we turn to the scriptures and find inside that um, those there have the same questions that we have. They have the same doubts and struggles that we do. And I think we can learn a lot from their experience. And so this morning, um, we're going to look at the book um, of John um, in chapter 20, verses 24 to 31. And this is what uh, John, who is one of Jesus' disciples and one of his best friends who wrote down an eyewitness account of his life for us to read. And this is what he writes. He says, Now Thomas, 
also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, If you grew up around church, you might have been given, when you were younger, a children's Bible. Um, I was given uh, this one the other day um, by a friend who felt led to encourage me with it, Um, and I was encouraged, um, actually, because it's always good to be reminded that you are still young, and that despite my kind of personal love of uh, cricket and sweater vests uh, and smooth radio, um, I am still young, and I can still own that and claim that for a little bit longer. Um, but what you'll find if you open up kind of a children's Bible is that inside you have all the, all the regular stories, um, but lots of nice illustrations and pictures and things like that that really help bring it all to life. And uh, when I was growing up, I always found that it was the pictures that helped to tell the story as much as the words. And one thing you learn from looking at all of the different pictures inside is what not to do. And so you look at the illustrations and you read the stories and you learn not to eat random things in the garden because you don't want to be like Adam and Eve. And you learn not to be too cocky and too arrogant because you don't want to be like Goliath and end up taking a stone to the face. You don't want to run away from your problems because you might get eaten by a big fish like Jonah. And, and above all, it's kind of the, the main thing you learn from looking at the pictures um, is that you should never grow a little pointy beard because you'll end up like Judas. And everyone knows that if you've got a little pointy beard, it means you're definitely evil. That's kind of the universal sign for it. But <laughs> apologies to anyone in this room. Yeah, I'm looking around. I think I'm okay making that joke. <laughs> I can't grow a pointy beard, so that's why I'm okay to me. I can't grow any kind of beard. Um, But I always found that as I was reading those stories, there was one guy in particular um, who always seemed as well to pop up as someone that you didn't want to be like, uh, and that was Thomas. You didn't want to be like Thomas, first of all, because his his first name was Doubting, um, and that was slightly unfortunate. Um, But the second thing was because he always seemed like someone who was on the edge, He seemed like someone who was on the outside, who was kind of the outcast disciple. Um, As we heard in the story earlier, he was off somewhere else, doing something different when Jesus appeared to his followers on that resurrection Sunday. He's left as the skeptic in the midst of the believers. 
And when we think of Thomas, we tend to think of a scene, uh, something like this one that's going to appear on the screens. This is a painting um, by Karl Heinrich Bloch. Um, and what we see in it um, is Thomas kind of cowering on his knees, hiding his face with his hands, staring down at the ground, and Jesus towering above him, looking kind of slightly peeved um, as he does. Um, that's my artistic evaluation of that thing. Um, and we see the disciples in the background kind of hiding away in the darkness. And the whole scene is one that looks like Jesus kind of wants to just get it over and done with. It's a scene of, of disappointment, of the shame of Thomas, of a kind of aloofness of Jesus, of the disconnectedness of the disciples. And it's easy for us to have this kind of picture in our minds when we read the story that we've read together this morning, when we think about that scene, a picture that is, is overwhelmingly dark and depressing, that says very little about kind of life and community and friendship, that leaves us certain that just like how we don't want to be like any of those other characters, we definitely don't want to be a doubting Thomas. And I know that for me, of all of those stories, this is one that really hits home. Because whilst I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm not an Adam or an Eve or a Goliath or a Judas, I'm afraid I might be a Thomas. And I wonder if that's true for you as well. I wonder if you've ever been afraid that you've thought thoughts you shouldn't think. If you've been afraid to, to ask things that you think you shouldn't ask. If you've been afraid that you might doubt things that you think you really shouldn't doubt. And I wonder if, like me, you've wondered whether to do any of that would be to meet with a Jesus like the one in this kind of painting. A Jesus who is disappointed who's disconnected, who's dark and cold. And for a long time now, I think that's the impression that people have of the church, that in the midst of all of the questions of our culture, of the, the skepticism of religious claims of any kind, there's a fear that there might not actually be any answers. And if there are, then you're better off looking inside yourself, trying to create your own truth, rather than looking outwards towards anything else. The church hasn't been seen as a place where people can come and ask their questions. And it's certainly not been seen as a place where they might come and find any answers. And yet I believe that that's at the heart of who we're to be as Oasis, that we're here as the stained glass window above me illustrates, to feed the hungry to welcome the marginalized, to comfort the sick, but also to hold out truth to the seeking. We are to live in response to what we've known, that as we discover together more and more of what it is that Jesus changes everything, that Jesus is enough, we're to be those who constantly invite others in, in order that they too might come and ask their questions and wrestle with them and find answers. But more than that, that they might encounter the Jesus 
who is with them in their questions. Jesus, very different to the one painted here in such austere hues. A Jesus who isn't disappointed or disconnected, but who is overflowing with the very life, the very warmth of God himself. A Jesus who comes not to offer condemnation, but to offer an invitation that is open to all. And so as we get to grips with this text this morning, we're going to look together at three different areas. The agony of faith, the assurance of faith, and the invitation of faith. So firstly, uh, the agony of faith. And the first thing we find in the passage is that Thomas uh, seems pretty adamant in his disbelief. And so he says, uh, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Full stop, exclamation mark, if you like, the end. And we can read that and, and start to get this picture of Thomas as a kind of hard-nosed skeptic, someone who's, who's set in his ways. But I think it's really important to remember that the other disciples didn't believe straight away as well. They didn't believe the first-hand testimony that they'd heard from Mary Magdalene and the other women who'd visited the tomb on the Easter morning. It wasn't until they encountered the risen Jesus for themselves that they got it, that they understood. I think we have to remember and keep that Easter story in mind because it shows us that Thomas's statement isn't one of kind of a, um, a cut-off inquiring bystander. Um, it's not a question of a, a kind of systematic um, theologian and fact-checker. Um, it's an agony cry, a cry filled with pain from a friend who is hurting from a student who is confused, from a follower who's lost. And it might end with a full stop, but like all doubts, it starts with a question. And his is a question of agony. And it's this one. Is it really possible to see life come out of all of this death, out of everything that he's seen? He'd seen life. He'd seen Jesus healing the sick and walking on water. He'd seen him um, giving sight to the blind and raising the dead. In other words, he'd seen life coming to a world of death through the person of Jesus Christ, only for death to seem to swallow up that life in the midst of it. He didn't understand, and in fact, nobody Understood. Despite all of Jesus' teaching, not one person in the entire world had understood that Jesus would need to go through death and then rise from death in order to complete what he came to do. Of all of the things that his followers expected him to do, or wondered if he might do, or longed for him to do, not one of them had dared imagine that he might be crucified on a cross and then raised to life again. That's a million miles from their thinking. And so when the disciples come to Thomas and tell him that they've seen the risen Jesus, Thomas asks to see his scars. That's important. He doesn't ask to see his face or his glory or anything kind of mystical or spiritual. 
He wants to see his scars. And Thomas does that because he's being driven by the agony of his faith. He wants to know that there is real life that comes out of real death. And he wants to know, he does know, that the only sure way to know that there is life in the midst of a world of pain and suffering and death is to see the scars on a living, breathing, physical Jesus. He wants to know, to see, to touch, that there is comfort in the hurt. There are answers in the question. There's a path in the mystery. It's not that Thomas doesn't get it. It's that he gets it all too well. Thomas knows that in the midst of a world of death, what we need most of all is not a God of rumor and suspicion, not a God of of distant glory, but a God who has died and come to life again. A God who has felt the horror of death in the darkest place in order that he might bring life and light in that place. God who isn't gonna sidestep the question of suffering, but who's gonna take it on himself. That's what we need. A God who, who shows us that he is enough. That he changes everything, not by whisking us off from that hard place to a, a kind of disembodied existence but by meeting us right in the middle of that place. That's what we need. That's what the world needs. And Thomas, I think, shows us that the experience of faith is not always, and in fact, not usually, a straightforward matter. It's a journey which is often marked by significant struggles, significant questions, significant moments of agony. We don't know why it was that Thomas wasn't there with the other disciples when Jesus appeared to them for the first time. But I think we can know that the week that followed was a tough week for him. It might have been the longest week of Thomas's life. His friends, his community, everyone he knows is celebrating this amazing news, this stunning turn of events, and he's left alone in his doubt. And I think it's really important that we don't skip over that week. That we don't think, yeah, Thomas doubted, but then it was all right. It was all right, but there's a long week in between where he's wrestling with everything that he's feeling and everything that he's seeing around him. And the wonderful thing about this story is that Jesus does come to Thomas, but he doesn't come right away. He allows Thomas to wrestle with his faith, to expose his weaknesses, to get to the heart of what he believes and why he believes it, to understand more and more what it means that if it is true that Jesus has risen from the dead, then it is the greatest truth that the world has ever known. It is the truth that changes everything. And for some of us today, we know that we're in the middle of that week ourselves. For you, it might be questions of suffering or of grief 
whatever it is. I want you to know that this story shows us that it's okay. We don't need to put on a mask of one who has it all sorted. Adrian spoke a few weeks ago about the need to give voice to how we're feeling, to give voice to our questions, both to one another and to God. And that's so important when we know that we're in the middle of a week or a month or a year like the one Thomas experienced. It's so important that we allow those questions out because unless we do that, we haven't formed the space for them to be answered. We haven't created a context to receive comfort, to share with others, or to know hope. Ultimately, we haven't allowed ourselves the opportunity to find the answers that we're looking for. Because the good news, the hope that Jesus offers in the, is that in the midst of agony and faith, there is an assurance, there is a hope that changes everything. And the assurance of faith is that Jesus hears and Jesus answers. Look again at the four things uh, that Thomas says. Um, He says, I want to see his scars, put my finger into the mark, put my hand into his side, or I won't believe. That's the four things he says. And then when Jesus comes to him, what does he say? He says, see my hands, put your fingers here, put your hand in my side, stop doubting and believe. He answers each of the parts of Thomas's statement, just as he said it. But you know, this isn't a case of Jesus trying to kind of score points on Thomas. He's not trying to shut him down. He's not trying to make him feel bad about asking each of those different things. Jesus is demonstrating his grace to Thomas through this question and through his answer. It's a very particular request that Thomas makes and a very particular answer that Jesus gives. He's not trying to compete. He's saying, I heard you, Thomas. I hear you, Thomas. You know, one of the biggest fears in our culture today is that nobody is listening. We are able to say far more to far more people in far more distant places than ever before. And yet we're more afraid than ever that nobody is listening. That politicians and businesses and the media and even our co-workers and our friends and our families aren't listening. That they don't understand us, that nobody hears us. We live in an age far more connected than past generations could ever have dreamed and in a culture far more disconnected than they could ever have feared. We live in a world that is crying out for someone to listen and understand. And that's what Jesus does for Thomas. When he answers him, it's not to score points or to shut him up. He does it so that Thomas might know that the deepest, darkest fear of his heart the one that he would keep hidden from everyone else if he could, the doubts and questions that are eating him up inside have been heard and understood and answered 
supremely in the person of Jesus himself. But Jesus doesn't just show that he's heard Thomas. He shows that he can answer him. Um, I don't know if you have uh, any scars. Um, I have kind of the tiniest, uh, tiniest and faintest one um, on my shoulder from a bike crash and that I assure you was much more dramatic and exciting um, if you'd watched it happening in front of you um, than the scar would suggest. Um, it's about that long um, and is almost invisible to the human eye, but it's there. Um, but if someone shows you their scars, let alone uh, encourages you to touch them, it's an incredibly intimate action. It's a deeply personal, deeply relational action because it tells a story of pain and more often than not a story of vulnerability. You know, I can look back on my little scar now um, and laugh about it and joke that I kind of wish it was much bigger and cooler than it really is. But the truth is that the moment that led to that really hurt. And it hurt on the day, and it hurt even more in the months and months it took me to recover from it and to get over it. What we see with Jesus is that his body still carries the scars of his life and his death. And when we think about it, Jesus could, uh, in an instant, in a moment, have healed all of the scars from the crucifixion. You know, if Jesus can rise from the dead... He can certainly erase from his body everything that demonstrated the suffering and the humiliation that he endured on the cross. And yet, what the world sees as imperfections, and imperfections don't come much bigger than holes in your hands where nails have pierced them, and a hole in your side big enough for a hand to fit inside. Those seeming imperfections are included and are in fact given prominence in his new body. Why? Because Jesus doesn't see them as imperfections. He's not ashamed of his scars. They're the trophies that tell of the magnitude of what he did on the cross. They are the demonstration of the depth of the cost that he had to endure to bring us back to him, they're the evidence that he is born within himself, the death that we were due, the, the exhibition of the power of sin and shame that was keeping us captive, but now has been broken. They're the proof that he loves us so much that he was willing to do whatever it took to achieve that. And they're the expression that he did it so gladly and so willingly that he will bear those scars for all of eternity to testify to that truth. Jesus' scars are the promise that whoever we are and whatever we've done, we can always come running to him because this is what he's endured to bring us close. Jesus' body displays that which he views as the very most important thing to communicate to those around him, that it is finished, that the power of the world of death has been broken, that life has been born right in the middle of it. God's project of new creation, inaugurated at the very moment when it looked like death 
and decay and darkness had won out. And the same is true for our bodies. Um, I've shared a little bit um, before um, about my struggle in the midst of different injuries that I've had to separate who I am from what I do. And yet now, when I look at my scars, what I see is not an imperfection, but a trophy of his grace to me. That's why I have to remind myself every time I look, every time I see again, they are a story of his faithfulness in the midst of the struggle. And the assurance of faith is that when we bring our scars to Jesus, whatever they might be, our physical, spiritual, emotional, mental, or relational scars, he will tenderly meet us. He will lovingly hear us. He will graciously answer us. Not by clicking his fingers and making them all vanish, but by working in the midst of them to break the power of shame and isolation and fear and cause us to know his peace and his wholeness and his love. The assurance of faith is not a formula or a system. It's the gift of God himself in Christ, freely given to us, a gift that we have only to receive by faith. As we echo the words of Thomas, my Lord and my God. And this is what John has been building up to throughout his entire account, the invitation of faith. In the very first chapter of his gospel, he writes, the word has become flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. But what does that mean? What does that look like in practice? And so John leads us on through his account, and off we go, through Galilee and Jerusalem, through miracles and teaching, and through glory and gloom, until we come to the cross. And now, a week later, what it looks like is this, a hurting, confused disciple, feeling cut off from the joy being experienced by his friends, cautious but still seeking, confronted by a smiling savior, a living, breathing, physical, relational savior. That's what it looks like for the word to have become flesh and dwelt among us. Come to us, draw near to us. See, first of all, Jesus is speaking to Thomas here. But then a moment later, he looks over Thomas's shoulder and he looks at someone else. He looks straight at you and straight at me. And you see, the danger when we come to this passage is that we leave discouraged because we can think that Thomas got what he wanted and I haven't yet. He got to feel and to touch the risen Jesus and I don't. We come to this place to worship, we, we raise our hands as we sing because we want to feel him. We ask for his spirit to come because we want to experience him. But sometimes we don't feel what we want to feel. We don't experience what we want to experience. We don't see what we want to see. And Jesus knows this. He knows our pain. 
he hears our doubts with his heart of compassion. And so he looks over Thomas's shoulder, speaks straight to us, and he says, you're blessed too. You are not a second-class believer because you haven't physically seen and touched and felt. You too are seen. You too are heard. You too are known. You too are loved. And to all of us who are there, looking over Thomas's shoulder, with our own doubts and our own struggles, asking the question, can I see too? Jesus looks straight at us and he invites us in. He wants us to know that even though we can't see what Thomas saw and feel what he felt, our lives are just as secure by faith as his was by sight. And John follows that up in the very next verse. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Basically, he's saying, you may not get to touch Jesus in the way that we did, but I've written all of these things so that you can touch him here so that you can know him here, so that you can reach out with faith and know the security and the identity and the life that Jesus offers. Our goal is not to have the best answers, although I'm convinced we do have some pretty good answers. It's to behold Jesus again, to receive him again, and to hold him out so that we might invite others in to the life that he offers, to show those who are in the midst of grief and pain, those who are coming with their questions, like Thomas, to show them a God who has scars, a God who has been there himself, a God who weeps over the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and then brings his resurrection life to that place. Jesus doesn't want to shame you for your questions. He doesn't want to beat you down for having questions. He wants to answer your questions with himself by inviting you in to the pain and the beauty of his life and sharing himself with you. Faith is is simply the response that says, I see Jesus and I want Jesus. And that's the invitation he's holding out to you right now. And so we're going to finish there in just a moment's time. But as we do, um, I want to offer an opportunity for anyone who would um, like to respond to anything we've looked at this morning um, to do that. You know? uh, and, and in particular, I think there are a couple of different groups First of all, if you're here today and you, you know that you have kind of a specific doubt that you're really struggling with, you're really grappling with, um, and I want to encourage you, if that's you today, to be patient with that. Because what your doubts are saying is that you're probably tapping into something very real 
in the world, that Jesus hasn't come in his fullness yet, and it's okay to hold together the tension of the agony and assurance of faith, even as we respond to the invitation. You know, I think it's vital that this scene takes place, not with Thomas off somewhere on his own, but in the midst of the community, because it gives us the pattern for how we are to respond to our own doubts, not by isolating ourselves, but by wrestling through them alongside those who love us and know us. This place is a safe place to give voice to fears and doubts and questions. And secondly, if you're here today and you know that you're feeling the weight of a scar or scars that you're carrying, um, I don't know what that is for you, but you know that you've been through something, something in your past, something maybe that you're living with at the moment, and it's cut you deeply, and it's hurt you deeply, and you just know you need to bring it to Jesus. You need to meet with him and lay that down before him. And know that in the midst of it, you are known and heard and loved. And see the power of, of shame and isolation and fear broken as Jesus comes and says, peace. He pronounces peace like he did as he met with the disciples to offer himself to you again. If you're here today and you know that either or both of those things are true for you, in a moment I want you to do a brave thing and come down to the front. We're going to have an opportunity to pray for you. We'd love to stand with you as you wrestle with these things, as you work through them together. Not because um, there's anything special about the front, just because we've got a little bit more room here. So in a moment, I'm going to pray, um, and then we're going to finish, and if you've got kids, you're welcome to go and, uh, and pick them up and bring them back um, and hang out with them. Um, but after that, if you want to respond to either of those two things, why don't you come down to the front? So we'd love to pray for you and stand with you. So I wonder if we could all stand together again. Lord Jesus, we come in the midst of a week when again, as a community, we know that we're experiencing grief and we're experiencing pain and that many of us come with our questions and that few of us or none of us have got it all sorted. And we come to you again and we thank you that you are the God that we need. A God not of rumor and suspicion, a God not of kind of distant glory hiding away, but a God who has come and lived and died in order that you might invite us in to your life. You might answer our doubts with yourself. So we come to you this morning, Jesus, with whatever we are carrying. We say, Lord, we need you again. Jesus, we come to you again. Thank you that our lives are secure by faith in you. We thank you that you are the one who longs to bring peace and comfort and hope in the midst of the darkest situations. But we thank you as well that you are not the God who causes us to rush on. 
who skips over the week of agony. You're the God who is real, who knows our real doubts, the struggle and pain we feel of real death. And you're the one who brings real life in the midst of it.